This is the second Sunday of Advent, and we're tracking through the Christmas Family Tree series. Um, it was a, a few years ago that I was having a conversation with some church folks after a service. I think it was right around uh, Thanksgiving season, and we were talking about the Advent season that was coming up, and everyone was very excited about uh, the programs that we were going to offer at church and the new sermon series that was going to launch, and uh, people were excited about family members that they were going to get to see during that season and the parties that they would get to, and everyone was kind of like sharing a little bit. And then someone said, I hate this season. I said, okay, Grinch. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, I was nice. I said, can you explain to us why? They said, well, because you guys have families to go to. I'm not from here, and I don't have anyone to go to uh, on, during the holidays. Um, I don't have any money to fly to my hometown. And even if I did, it, it fills me with anxiety when I'm around my family members because my family is so dysfunctional. And while this season is characterized by lights and the sounds and tastes, and we're able to see and experience that right now in this season, even our sanctuary has been very well decorated. Thank you for the team that decorated our space here. Uh, that's not the reality inside of many people throughout this season. Uh, this is a season where many of us are reminded of the things that we wish we had and we do not have. We don't have the family that we wanted. We don't have the family member that is no longer with us. He is gone, and this is a difficult season, therefore, to celebrate Christmas. We don't have the finances to do the parties and the gifts. You may not have the emotional health during this season, the emotional health that you would want to go through this season. And interestingly enough, when you read the Bible and you read about the story of Christmas from the very beginning of the Bible, you begin to notice this, that the people that God promises his salvation, the people that God promises his Messiah, are people very much like ourselves, that were in darkness, that were not happy with what they had, but... It's in the middle of their restlessness and their longing that God comes and meets his promise through the son that he brings into the world, the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the family of Jesus, a dysfunctional family, which is like mine and yours, a family with problems, people with issues, all sorts of issues who God works through in order to bring his salvation into the world. Last week, we looked at Jesus' first mother, Mary, and now we're looking at another mother. She is a daughter of Eve as well as we are, and it's uh, this woman by the name of Leah. She is the first wife of Jacob. If you were here during the summer, we had this series uh, called uh, Wanderers and Wrestlers, about the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Leah is therefore Jacob's first wife. And she is somebody that lives in darkness. She is someone that does not have what she wants. And she struggles with that. And then God's promise of salvation comes into her life through her family line. And so we're going to read about her in Genesis 29. We're going to read verses 31 through 35. By the way, a disclaimer, I did preach uh, on this passage 
in the summer, but I focus much more on Jacob than on what's going on with Leah. The focus in this sermon is going to be much more with Leah than with Jacob. And this is what we read in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Rachel was her sister. We'll get to that soon. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, When we read this passage here in this particular joint of her life story, there are three instances that this passage takes us through. First, we look at her misery, the source of her misery. Uh, Secondly, we learn about her encounter with God. And then lastly, we learn of her redemption or the breakthrough that she experiences. And this is to show that in order for you to experience breakthrough in your life, for you to experience God's redemption in your life, you must have an encounter with God. And the best place for you to have an encounter with God, it's in the moments and times of difficulty. It's in your struggle. It's in moments of pain. So let's look at her misery. Uh, the text tells us that she is a miserable woman. We, we hear it from her. Leah herself, it's from her own words in verse 32 and 34 that she says in 32, I am an afflicted woman. In verse 33, she says that she is a hated person. Uh, God confirms that. The passage confirms that in verse 31. The Lord saw that she was hated. She was a woman that had a very dark life. And the question, therefore, for us is why? Why is her life characterized by darkness? Why does she live a miserable life? Uh, First, there's what's going on on the outside, and then there's what's going on on the inside. Uh, You see, the text tells us earlier on, if you are familiar with her story, you know this, that Leah had a physical condition that compromise or threaten her social standing. Uh, The text tells us that she had a problem with her eyes. Uh, The Bible is not very clear about what that meant. Maybe she could not see. She had bad eyesight. Maybe it was something aesthetics about her own eyes. But uh, because of that, there was a barrier for her to be married. That men, when they came across her, men, when they were talking to Um, her father Laban about the possibility of marrying one of the daughters in order to uh, come up with a uh, family union. Uh, When they saw her, they said, "Ah, I'm not sure about this one. Uh, And that was a big problem because back in those days, the value of a woman is not compared to the value of a woman today. Women were not as valuable as men back then. Horrible times for women, uh, especially single women, especially women that could not bear 
children. Uh, women that were single were a source of shame, were stayed single. The only women that would stay single besides someone like Leah would be prostitutes. And women that could not bear children, they had no social value because their value was to bear children, specifically sons. And because she had that physical impediment, it was a threat to her social standing. And it was a great source of pain and a great source of preoccupation, not only for her, but for her father. Now, the text tells us that she had children, and she, and she had children because she got married. So that's interesting about her story. And what we learn is that the reason why she got married is because her dad had to trick someone into marrying her. Jacob was working for Laban, and Jacob's agreement with Laban was that he would marry the youngest daughter whom he loved, a woman by the name of Rachel, and she was beautiful, unlike her sister. But after the seven years of labor on the wedding day, uh, Laban tricks Jacob, and under the veil is not Rachel, but Leah. And after he drinks and parties with all the other guests, he goes to bed in his mind with Rachel, but he wakes up with Leah. And that is a great source of anger for Jacob. He goes back to Laban, and Laban says, well, here we don't have the custom of giving the younger one before the older one. I'll tell you what, work seven years more, and you can get the younger one too. And he says yes, because he really loved her. But the only way that her dad could offload her was because he was able to trick someone else. He outsmarted the trickster in Jacob. And so she is now married, but she has a husband that does not love her. And it reminds her that she is not loved not only by her husband, but by her father as well. Her life is characterized by misery. She's an outcast. She's a social outcast. She's an outcast inside her very own home. Have you ever felt that way? Were there times that you felt excluded because you did not have the race or the skin color or because you did not have the socioeconomic status or the education that others in your peer group had? How did it feel? I remember a particular time in my own life when Beth and I, we lived in North Carolina. It was a pastor, an assistant pastor at a very large church. And uh, what we did back in those days was uh, each pastor would carry on a beeper. That, that tells you how old I am. And uh, you know, what that beeper would do is if there was anyone in distress in the life of the community, that they would call that number and the pastor that would be on call that week would respond back and address to that person's needs, whatever the, the needs uh, may have been. And I, I was carrying the beeper that week and I came home to my newlywed wife. We had no kids at the time and I went into our apartment, and the beep started a buzz. And I was about to sit down for dinner. I was like, oh, man, this beeper is buzzing right now. So I, I called the number, and it turns out that one of the church's members had had an accident, and he was in a very critical situation, and the family needed some care. And I said, okay, tell me what the hospital is and what room it is, and I will be there. So I'm getting myself ready and going out of the house, and when I'm going down to my car, I get a phone call from my boss. 
And uh, my boss says, hey, uh, where are you going? I said, well, I just got a call. I'm going to go to the hospital to see this person. And uh, he said, well, why don't you just stay home? And, and I said, well, why, why should I stay home? And he says, well, because uh, when you called and you spoke to a family member, they could hear your accent, and they want no Mexicans over there at the hospital. It's funny, right? But it wasn't funny to me at the time. And if it was you, you wouldn't think it was funny either at the moment. Today, we can laugh about it. Um, but it was not funny. And I wrestled with him. I said, no, this is my time to go. I've been equipped and trained to do this, and I am going. He says, no, no, you're not going. I am going myself. I am the one that's going. You stay home. And we wrestled over the phone. And the next day, you know, my wife shows up on staff and you know, she confronts all sorts of people. It was, a, it was a big mess. But at that moment, I felt with others, I could empathize with others of how much more they feel excluded by either a physical condition or by their race. I felt that pain. It's completely dehumanizing if you were ever to go through an experience such as this, to be excluded from a community. And the interesting thing about this passage is that the message of Christmas is one that the Savior of the world, the way in which God saves is he comes in and he invites those who are in the margins, those who are in the outcast, those who are unloved and unwanted, such as Leah, and he brings them in as a part of that which he wants to do in the world. That's how God's salvation is ushered in. But there's not only what's happening on the outside, but there's also what's happening on the inside of her as well. Because now, even though she is married, finally, uh, even though her social standing has in some ways been repaired, now she has a husband, but that husband does not love her. That husband loves her sister. She has children, she is building a family, but she does not have her husband's heart. And what she begins to do is she begins to compare herself to her sister who has her husband's heart. And therefore, when we read this, this passage here, at every son that she has, she says, maybe now he will love me. Maybe now he will love me. And what she's saying is, I wish I had what she has. What she has, I do not have. And that is my hope and that is my dream that one day, maybe through bearing children, he will love me and I'll have his heart. What we also learn later on in the passage that her sister now, Rachel, is looking at her sister Leah, who is bearing children, but who is barren, which the text tells us. And she says, who cares about a husband? I don't have the children. You know, the text tells us very clearly, this passage, that Jacob does love Rachel a lot, and he's willing to work 14 years for her. But the text never tells us that Rachel loves him back. The text tells her that her heart is attached to children. In fact, because she is barren, she comes to Jacob and he says, if I don't have a child soon enough, I will take my whole life. I have lost purpose in life. That is what's inside of her. So the two sisters, ironically enough, are looking at each other and they're saying, I wish that I had what you have. 
See, uh, Christmas has the power to suffer all of our miseries. It confronts us with our false hopes and our desires for things that will never bring the ultimate satisfaction that we look and we long for. You know, uh, there are two important questions that we must ask because these questions are at the source of all our misery, not just in this season, but in every season. How do you feel excluded? But more importantly, who are you excluding? Who are the people that do not measure up to your standards that you are excluding? If God in this season clearly communicates to us that he has come for the outcast, how come you and I still have people in our lives that we exclude? Another important question for you and I to ask is, what are we during this season focusing which we do not have. See, I think that during the season, we should be even more mindful to focus on that which we have and which we have received instead of that which we do not have. What is it in your life that you do not have, that you wish you had, that has become the focal, central point of your thought life and your longings during this season? And I think that as we answer this question, we will begin to understand and realize that most of our lives is built on ingratitude or lack of gratitude for that which God has done for us. And that is what plunges us into moments or lives that are characterized by misery and darkness because we cannot see. See, excluded people, they exclude others. Exiled people, exiled others. And that's the source of most of the problems in our world today. It's because we don't know how welcomed and accepted we have been. We forget what the message of Christmas is all about. But it's in that moment, it's in that moment of darkness, in this moment of pain, that God has an encounter with Leah. Because after all, not only in her story, but in every story, almost every story in the Bible, the times that people have encounters with God is not when things are going well. It's not when we are happy with everything around us and inside of us, but it's in moments of pain and in moments of longing. And so it's in her pain that she has an encounter with God. It's in her pain that God moves towards her and she is open and vulnerable to receive Uh, We read in this passage that there is an active conversation between her and God. There is a prayer life. And the reason for that is because of where she finds herself, of the soil of her heart. That's why she encounters God, which serves as a great encouragement to all of us here today. Because if this happens to be a season that you're going through in life, a season of pain, that you just want to fast forward through the new year, There's hope for you. I want you to be encouraged because this is the best time and the best moment for you to experience the power of God in your life. How does God's salvation come into the world? God's salvation comes to the world in a moment and times through people of weakness. It's it's in darkness that his light shines. It's in the ashes that we we are able to see his beauty. And so... If you're going through that right now, be encouraged. 
She has an encounter with God in her pain because we can encounter God in our pain. It's a good place to encounter God. But she also encounters God through others. What we read in verse 31, that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, when, when the Lord saw his condition, his heart inclined towards her, and what did he do? The verse tells us that he opened her womb. Now, what God is doing here is something extraordinary. Uh, he is not only restoring her social standing and restoring her value in her, in her society and her community to her father and to um, Jacob's family. He, she is not only receiving that from God, but God is giving her the opportunity of being loved by people. You know, she is a woman that has not been loved by her father. She's been used by her father her whole life, and she has not been a woman that's been loved by her husband either. And she's probably always in conflict and at war with her sister. What a great picture of most of our families. But God gives her the gift of being loved through these children that she is bearing. God gives her a family. Because children love their mothers unconditionally. It don't matter if the eyes are crossed. It don't matter if they weigh a certain weight, if they are short or tall, if their skin is one color or another. A child always loves his mother. And God is saying, hey, I am loving on you, and I'm going to love on you through these babies. And so she has three sons, and the first one is Reuben. But because she does not realize that that is what God is doing, she begins to use God and she begins to use the babies to get what she really wants. So she has the first son, and she conceived and bore a son, and she calls his name Reuben. And the name Reuben means to see me. And so she is expecting that now when she comes home that he will drop his iPhone and he will pay attention to her. That he will close his computer screen and get off from work and spend time with her. She says, because the Lord, the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me. Now he will see me. And it fails. So the Lord gives her another son by the name of Simeon. And Simeon means to hear me. And so she says, now this time he will see my worth and he will see my value and he will listen to me. He will not tune out after five minutes of our conversation. He will listen to me when I come home and I use the full 30 minutes to talk about my day at my work. He will not cut me off. He will hear me. He will listen to me. Because I have borne him a son, and it doesn't work. And so God gives her another son, and his name is Levi. And Levi means to connect with. Because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name will be called Levi. She's hoping that she will now find intimacy with him because now it's three. Three is the lucky charm. It's the charm, you know. It does the trick. And it does not work. And what we learn here is that God is attempting 
over and over and over again to get to her heart. God is hoping that she will realize that the people that he has placed in her life, these babies, are signs of his care and his love for her. And as they love the mother back, that she will experience his love through them. But she refuses to see. She cannot see. And so she's still using the children. She's still using God to get what she wants, which is her husband's heart. The first question I want to ask you today is, you know, God has loved you through people because God always loves us through people. Who are the people that God has placed in your life that he has loved you through, that you fail to acknowledge, that you fail to recognize? And I think this season is a very important season for you to acknowledge and recognize that. And many of you, here's a homework for you this week, need to call, need to text, need to write a handwritten note, need to email these people and say, hey, thank you so much for being in my life. God has loved me through you. Because that's how he works. He loves us through people. We fail to acknowledge, we fail to recognize, but that's his primary care towards us is through people. But could God love through a child, through a baby? Oh, yeah. God can love through a baby, and this is what the season is about. But to the degree that you fail to recognize this, you will be in this loop. You'll be in this hamster wheel spinning over and over again, trying to find satisfaction and things that will never fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. And so it's in that that she experiences breakthrough. She has the third son. It doesn't work. And now... She realizes something by the grace of God. I believe it's um, a working, an inner working of the Holy Spirit that uh, ministers to her, and she's able to see something that she wasn't able to see before. It's a moment where the penny drops, where she experiences full redemption. And she breaks out of those unhealthy patterns in her life of that codependent relationship that she finds herself in with that husband of hers. There's three things that she does that allows her to experience this breakthrough and redemption in her life. And those are the same three things that you and I must do as well. First, she adjusts her expectations. You must adjust your expectations. It took her three sons for her to realize that it was a Sisyphean task to try to use the children to get to her husband's heart. You know the, 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 the myth of Sisyphus that rolled up a boulder up a hill and rolled back down his whole life. He was condemned to that. She realized that that was a Sisyphean task. And we look at someone like her and says, this is a stupid woman. How many times... Is she going to fall into this trap? Yet you and I have fallen into this trap over a hundred times. And we haven't realized. We haven't broken out of this unhealthy cycle and pattern. So she is a a depiction. She is a picture. I want you to realize this. Of you and I. And by the grace of God, she, she realized, no, he cannot. 
I wish I had his left, but even if I had, I'd be married to an imperfect man. And those of you who have been married for years, I've been married for 22, and some of you here have been married for longer, more decades than I have lived. And you know that even the best marriages are still broken and they're still imperfect. And she realized that she could be okay and all right, even if she didn't have her husband's heart. Because even when you do have your husband's heart or your spouse's heart, you're still married to an imperfect person that's going to let you down, is going to fail you. And, and therefore, what we read here is astounding, right? Uh, in verse 35, after the third son, she now has the fourth son, and she conceived again and bore a son. And, 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 and look at this. And this time she said, I will praise the Lord. She realized what she was doing and how much that was hurting her. And then she says, I'm going to stop doing that. I've always had children, and I looked at Jacob for approval. And this time, I will have a son, and I'm no longer looking at Jacob, but I'm going to look at the Lord. This time, I'm going to look at God. Because maybe here's the hope that he will love me like no earthly husband will ever love me. He will fulfill the needs that I have, my emotional needs, in a way that no human husband can fulfill. And let me say something to you guys here today. Some of you married couples are looking for that fulfillment in your earthly spouse, and that's the source of your misery too. Because you do something and you look at them instead of looking at God. You have stopped looking at God. You have no prayer life. You have no devotional life. You have no anticipation to come and to worship God. Your life has been surrendered to some other deity rather than the God of the Bible, to Jesus Christ. And that's the source of your misery. And she realizes that. And what she does next is she course corrects the trajectory of her heart. She notices that her heart is uh, in a very, very difficult and hopeless road that her heart is leading her towards more resentment, that her heart is leading her towards bitterness, that her heart is leading her to an even deeper codependency in her relationship, that her heart is leading to a full breakdown of her own heart and her family structure. She realizes that, and she stops. And what does she do? She not only takes her hope off of Jacob, but she takes it off of Jacob and places it on the Lord. It's not enough for you just to recognize the unhealth of your heart's trajectory. It's not enough for you to recognize the idolatry of your heart. You must take your heart's hope off of something, but you must put it into something greater and eternal. And that's what she does. Because if you don't do that, you're just going to replace one imperfect source of hope for another. And so she removes that from her husband. You know, a lot of women, they take it off their husband, they put it on the children. A lot of men, they take it off their families and they put it on their work. Oh, my, my family has failed me or my children have failed me. I'm going to look at my work. My husband has failed me. I'm going to look at my children for acceptance and approval and love. She takes it off of an imperfect source and places it on a perfect source. She course corrects the trajectory of her heart. You must correct the trajectory of your heart if you're going to experience this breakthrough. And it's when she does that that she truly finds power 
because she is reminded of a greater love because the proof of that great love comes to her. When she surrenders her heart, I, I think this is what's going on in her, in, her, in her mind and inside of her. She says, this time, if I have a son, I'm not going to look at um, Jacob anymore. I've surrendered, and God still gives her a son. And it's God saying that I, I still love you. I am here for you. And it's significant, the son that God gives her. What's his name? Judah. Judah is the name of the fourth son. And if you know anything about Judah, Judah was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And it's through the 12 sons of Jacob that you have the 12 tribes of Israel. The people whom God brings and ushers his salvation into the world. But which son is the son that carries the lineage of the Messiah? Judah. It's not Simeon. It's not Levi. It's not Reuben. It's Judah. Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And that's God's way of telling her, see, I told you that I would turn your mourning into dance, that I would pick up the ashes and bring beauty out of this, that I would bring light into your darkness, to you that thought that you would be a source of social shame, that you would never get married, never have a son, I have brought the Savior of the world through. God has loved her through her sons and through the ultimate son, and God has loved you and I through his son. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for whoever believes in him may not perish but experience eternal life. Do you see this? Do you see God loving you, especially through the season, through the son that he has sent into the world? You need to connect your heart to that reality so that you will experience the acceptance and the love that you long for and everything else in life that will never deliver, but who God has delivered through his son. As, O oh, holy night, that um, beautiful Christmas carol goes, uh, we say this, that it was not until he appeared that our soul felt its worth. And so it's my hope that in the realization of his appearance to you, that your soul will find its worth. Will you pray with me?